We'd love to give you one to give to a friend so that they can have God's Word. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Gary will make sure that you've got one. <clears throat> because we're going to want to work through this text together today. We'll be in Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> Excuse me. Continuing our, uh, our Dear Theophilus series. Uh, and I'm going to steal this water. I hope it's Shelley's, but it might be Josh's. So... <clears throat> Anyhow, uh, as we are working through this, we've been going through uh, Luke 7, and it's, it's the next phase of this story uh, that is more than a story. As Luke writes his account of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it's a story in that uh, there is a narrative to it, like all of history. But it's more than a story in that there's a purpose to it. Luke is writing with the intention of giving us a solid foundation for our faith. Luke is the only Gentile writer of Scripture, and so his perspective is a little bit different. And he wasn't personally associated with Jesus. And so as he is writing this gospel, he goes through for his own sake a wrestling with the truth. As he's received the message of Christ from the apostles, uh, he's specifically associated with Paul. And as Luke uh, gets a hold of this, he takes what Paul gives him and he wrestles with it. Luke is a physician. Doctors like to have some evidence. They like to see things, to see a cause and effect. And so as he writes to his friend Theophilus, Luke says, I'm writing this having wrestled with it myself. I've investigated everything thoroughly. And I want you to have this so that you can know the certainty of what you've been taught. You and I, as we come to grips with real life, have to wrestle with real life. We need to connect the dots. We need to, to wrestle with what we believe about God to discover who He really is. Because ultimately, what you and I believe about God doesn't change a thing about Him. It only changes what we're going to do about it. So Luke writes with that in mind. He gives us the story. He tells us about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. He tells us how Jesus is born and how it's foretold and prophesied and the amazing virgin birth that takes place. And we'll be uh, celebrating that as Doreen announced earlier. We're coming up on this Advent season uh, in just, just a month away. We're talking about moving into Christmas mode to celebrate the coming of our Lord. Now, as we see Jesus walking around as a, as a regular man, he's more than a man. He's the God-man. And Luke does a, a great deal to establish his identity both as fully human and also as fully divine, fully God. 100% God, 100% man. Not part God, part man. Not God acting like man. Not a man who thinks he's God or speaks on behalf of God. He's more than a prophet. He's the Messiah. God even announces it himself. It, when Jesus is baptized, along with so many repentant people who are turning from their way to God's way. And Jesus is identified with God's way, which is the purpose of baptism, that identification. So as he comes to John and he is baptized the heavens open up and the father speaks 
This one. This one is my son. This is my son, and I love him. I'm pleased with him. And they actually see the Holy Spirit. Not a common thing. Spirit, invisible. But the Holy Spirit manifests himself in a visible way, described like a dove. And Jesus, his identity is confirmed here. Then we see him preaching, and as he preaches, he preaches as one with authority. Not like regular teachers. It's not somebody who heard about it and talked about it. He preaches as if he is the very author of the book. When Jesus reads the scripture, it's not like somebody else just reading what someone else wrote. Jesus reads the scriptures as the author of the scripture. He does miraculous things and demonstrates that he has full authority over both the physical and spiritual realms. He heals sick people. He casts out demons. Not with some fancy formula. He just shows up, says, demon, shut up and be gone. There's no question. He's the king. He is the sovereign. And this king who is sovereign also heals and raises the dead. Now in chapter 7, we see this transition, and we've been here for a little while, so I won't take a lot of time on it, but we see Jesus continuing this ministry and now dealing with, uh, with the follow-up to that. John the Baptist is now in prison. He begins to have not necessarily doubts in that he doubts God's word, but he starts to wonder, did I get this right? Because this doesn't make sense. I know the truth about God, and I know the truth about who Jesus is, but if that's all true, why am I still in prison? Why am I going through what I'm going through? Then he begins to have anxiety, and Jesus answers the question, not with a description, but with action. Go tell John what you're seeing here. Sick are healed, dead are raised. The good news, the gospel, is preached to those who are poor and oppressed. And as Jesus does this, John is comforted, but it's significant that Jesus defends John. and doesn't say, oh man, poor John, he just doesn't get it. You may remember Jesus saying to his disciples, oh ye of little faith, have I been with you so long and you still don't get it? He doesn't say that here. He says to John, or about John, to the crowd, there is nobody who has ever been born who's like John. He's the greatest. Because John sees what everybody else only foretold. But even with that, the very least in the kingdom, the first newborn baby Christian, is greater than John. John got a glimpse. You get to receive the kingdom. And we find ourselves following that with this amazing connection in verses 29 and 30. We're going to be actually looking at verses 36 to 50, but we can't look at verses 36 to 50 without getting the whole picture and looking back specifically at this parenthetical statement that we find, uh, if you have an NIV, it literally has parentheses in there. That's not in the original. That's added in the English translation. But there's a connection here. After Jesus says what he says about John, the people respond. Notice how they respond. Verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. 
But the Pharisees and the experts in the law, the Pharisees are the most religious, uh, best behaved, most pious and holy people there are. Forget about what we think about Pharisees. This is what they are known as. They are the religious leaders. The Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Don't let this just slide by you. It's a really important thing, and it's the foundation for what we're going to see today. When Jesus speaks about John, John has been preaching the gospel that the Messiah would come. When Jesus shows up, John's the first one to say, this is him. This is the guy I was talking about. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one who will save you from your sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you'll notice it's not the good people that respond. It's the wretched, the patently immoral people that society rejects. They get it. And the preachers don't. We're going to take a look at this today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we explore your word together today, I pray that, that you would open our eyes, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that all the stuff that gets in the way, all the distractions, all of the, the various things that are weighing on our hearts and minds right now would just fade, would melt, that we would begin to see them as they really are, small, unimportant in light of eternity. Right now that's hard for us to grasp because some of us are going through really dark and heavy times and it feels like everything and forever. Give us an eternal perspective today. And Father, some of us are riding high and celebrating the, the high school football team going into the playoffs and you know things are going well and our jobs are, are going well and Lord, give us an eternal perspective. Help us to see what really, truly matters that we might take hold of and experience the real life you have for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I um, worked on several really clever illustrations for you today, and, and I must say they were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant. Um, but I think for me to try to come up with a clever and brilliant illustration for you would undermine the fact that God's already given us an illustration. Our text today is the illustration. So we're going to approach it a little bit differently. And I want to apologize in advance for the fact that I will, I will inevitably not be able to do this justice. And it is my hope and my prayer that the songs we have already sung and the words that we will read from this book will do so much more to connect your heart with the Lord, to connect the reality of God to the realities that you face every day in ways that I never, never can. And I just want to borrow from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you are familiar with him as one of the great preachers of the 20th century. 
Um, I'm only becoming more familiar with them these days. One of the great preachers of the 20th century, and, and one of the things that he was known to say is just try to forget the little man behind the pulpit and focus on God. Because long after today, you need the truth of God's word in your heart. You don't need to be entertained by a preacher. And I confess, as my grandfather would have said, I tend to be a wiseacre. I, 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 without trying, I'll end up cracking jokes today, and I apologize for that. I really am going to try hard not to. Because I don't want my cracking jokes to be the point, to distract from what God is telling us today. The appropriate emotion for us is not laughter and entertainment, but it should be a sense of awe in the face of who God really is. If you're here ever, at any point, to be impressed by a preacher, you will be sorely disappointed. And if you are not disappointed, then that's so much worse. Because whatever I do is going to disappear by tomorrow. But if you get a hold of God, if you get a hold of what He's saying to you by His Spirit in His Word, that will change everything forever. That's my prayer today. We're going to do this a little bit differently because the, the story itself is our illustration. I don't think we're going to have to do a whole lot to help you connect to that. I think uh, that Jesus does that himself in the parable that he shares uh, at this dinner party. So we're going to take a, a little more inductive approach. We're going to look through it. We're going to read the text. We'll ask a few questions and walk through it together. Then we will move forward into how we can put this together in our own lives. So let's begin with Luke chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 36. You will remember uh, from last week, if you were with us, that Jesus sort of, uh, I don't know if it's really a condemnation as much as a lament about the people of his generation, that no matter what happened, they weren't going to be satisfied. John comes He's very disciplined, has a very severe lifestyle, and ah, he's a religious nut. He's got a few screws loose, must have a demon. Jesus comes and they're like, oh, he's he's clearly a lush. He's you know this this guy just going out and he's drinking and eating with all these sinners. He doesn't care about God's will. He can't really be a prophet. And Jesus laments that, and then immediately following that, we get this story where Jesus is invited to a dinner party. Let's enter in in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, mark that in your mind. A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. <clears throat> And as she stood behind him, <clears throat> as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, he said to himself, If this man 
were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Jesus has a habit of this, doesn't he? He, he had previously turned toward the crowd to talk about John. Now he turns toward the woman. He's seeing her, and he's talking to Simon the Pharisee. Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you didn't give me any water for my feet. That was the custom at the time. You walk around in sandals on uh, dusty, dirty roads where animals are, and you're going to get dirty feet. So the custom would be to wash your feet as you enter this house. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, a standard greeting of the time, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests, <coughs> excuse me, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now, when I read that, uh, my tendency is to read that with a sense of awe. But it appears that the connotation here is that they are judging him. Who is this blasphemer who thinks that he can forgive sins? Is he out of his mind? Only God can forgive sins. My guess is there probably was a mixture. Those who were already on board and following, who may have been there, may have had the sense of awe. But it appears that the Pharisee's friends, who are the Pharisee's friends? Probably religious leaders like himself, good people, prominent people, respected people. They seem to all have this same reaction that tends to be disdain. Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I like the Amplified Translation, or, or, uh, as, the, as the Amplified Bible clarifies these things. It tends to bring out some of the nuances of the original language. That's the point. It says, go into peace. Go into the peace that comes from having sins forgiven. And now you have this peace with God as you've set aside the junk of life. Now, as we walk through this together, there are some very obvious questions that we should be asking and some questions that we might get bogged down in. One is, who is this woman? And a lot of people will, uh, will get bogged down in trying to identify a woman that the Scripture doesn't identify. There's a reason that God doesn't tell us who it is, because it's not important. If God doesn't tell you, you don't need to know. 
Many have said, oh, it's Mary Magdalene. No, she doesn't even get introduced until later in the book. Many have, have compared this, so this is a parallel story to Mary of Bethany. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, you may remember them. And, and, and Mary has another anointing of Jesus' feet where she brings in a, a jar of perfume. And as she uh, brings this in, she anoints his head and, and does a whole separate thing. The context is different. Everything is different. The anointing is similar. There's an alabaster jar, there's a, a, which would not have been particularly uncommon. Maybe Mary of Bethany actually knew this story and it put her in mind to do such a thing. We don't know. But we do know this woman in Galilee, not in Bethany. Bethany's near Jerusalem. Galilee is not. As they are, are going through this, there is something unique. Incidentally, Mary Magdalene also doesn't fit because uh, the, we don't have the description of her the way uh, we often think. Many people say, oh, Mary Magdalene, she's a prostitute. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. It's just not there. That's made up. But as we look here, some of the really important questions we need to ask take us to the point of the story. Why is this woman doing this? Now, notice, Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's house. Raise your hand if you've had a dinner party. You've had people over to your house to gather. Okay, so we've done that. Have you ever had... A stranger just walk into your house and start interacting with your guests? That seems a little odd, right? Particular, imagine <laughs> a prostitute come into your house. Now, I don't know about you, but if we're having a party and I'm there and the prostitute comes into my house, my wife might have questions. Pharisee has questions too. It's interesting, he doesn't kick her out though, does he? I don't know why. I have some speculations as to possibly why. This woman is said to be immoral, that she lived a sinful life, and the implication seems to be very clear that <clears throat> she was uh, living a life of professional sin. And as she was doing this, one way or another, if you, if you don't accept that, and that seems to be the implication, it is very clear that her reputation preceded her. They saw her and they knew her. They saw her and immediately associated her with degradation, shame. She doesn't belong here. She's a sinner. Now, they may well have accepted, as we often would say, well, everybody's a sinner, right? Nod your head if you've said that before. Oh, well, we all sin, right? Okay, but you also, if you're honest with yourself, recognize somebody else with a bad reputation, and you don't think of them the same way as you think of Billy Graham. Billy Graham's also a sinner. But the hooker on the street and Billy Graham, you know, maybe you don't see them the same way. This Pharisee Simon, the homeowner, the host of the party, he doesn't see her as a sinner like Billy Graham. He sees her as exactly who she is. Someone who has no regard for the sanctity of her own body. Someone who has no regard for the godly influence of society. What a terrible person she is. 
how dare she show up here? And if this guy was really who I thought he might be, if he was really who everybody says he is, he would know better than to let this person of ill repute touch his exposed skin, share this moment of intimacy with him, he would rebuke her. At the very least, he would say, woman, stop sinning. But he doesn't say that here. Why is this woman doing this? Jesus gives us clues as to why. She comes in, comes into somebody else's house, among a bunch of respected people who have good reputations, she knows she's being looked down on. Have you ever been looked down on before? Have you ever been someplace where people didn't really accept you? They thought they were better than you, or more specifically, thought you were less than they were? Don't raise your hand for this, but some of you were, in the eyes of your community, maybe born on the wrong side of the tracks. Maybe you had the wrong background, the wrong family name. Maybe you didn't know your family name. Maybe you didn't have enough money to fit in. Maybe you had the wrong color skin for that crowd. Maybe you had the wrong whatever. Fill in the blanks. Maybe the people around you knew those things you wish you could have kept secret. Maybe, maybe this woman is you. I've been that woman. I've been in those places where people look at you funny. You don't belong here. And I've had a pretty privileged life in a lot of ways. So I know as we talk about this, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Why would she walk into this room and subject herself to ridicule? Why would she do that? Something greater must have compelled her. What do we know about Jesus? He's been going around preaching the gospel to the poor. That's the story we're just coming out of. He's been telling people, your sins can be forgiven. God wants a relationship with you. Turn from your wickedness to God and he will welcome you with open arms. And I'm here to bring that about. The kingdom of God is near. And you can be a part of it. He's going to the downtrodden, the outcasts, the Gentiles, those who are outside of Israel, outside of the accepted religious community. He's going to the tax collectors, avowed sinners. Think in your time. Whenever you hear tax collector in, in here, think uh, of a crime boss. Right? Think of a mafia kind of image. When you look at, you know, it's a Goodfellas kind of thing. So get that mentality when you think about the tax collectors. That's who Jesus is hanging out with. He's going to those people. And they're responding. It seems very evident, very clear, that that's exactly why this woman is here She's received this gospel. She's heard it. And she knows who she is. She knows her sins better than they do. Just like you know your sins better than I do. You want to think bad things about someone? <laughs> Martin Luther was very clear about that. Man, I know a hundred times worse things about myself. Go ahead. Make your accusations. It's not about me anymore. 
It's about the one who died in my place. This woman is starting to get it. And she realizes, I can't stand before God. But God is reaching down to me. And she's overwhelmed. Overwhelmed at the mercy of God. And so she comes in, maybe, maybe in her mind she's going to offer this expensive perfume to Jesus as a gift, as a tribute, to just, just say how grateful she is that he has been coming with this ministry. Maybe she was intending to anoint him the whole time, but one way or another when she gets there and she sees him, she's got to get to Jesus. And it doesn't matter where he is, and it doesn't matter who's watching, I've got to get to him. She's overwhelmed, and she sees the Lord there. And he's reclining at the table when it says she's behind him at his feet. At the custom of the day, they would be on a very low couch or even on the floor against a, a pillow reclining. They didn't sit at chairs like we do now. Probably resting on his left elbow, eating with his right hand, with his feet to the side or behind him. And she comes, and she's behind him at his feet, and she's so overwhelmed that the tears are just flooding. I had just, a, a, just the tiniest, tiniest little taste of that as we're singing today. And I, I'm trying to sing and I just can't continue because I'm thinking about what Jesus did for us. And my face starts leaking. And, and I wanted to stop because we're singing. I couldn't even breathe. That's just... Just a little bit. This woman is sobbing. If you can imagine the convulsions that come with overwhelming grief. She's weeping and she's pouring out her emotion and her wounds into the water coming from her eyes. And it's falling on his feet. And what, whatever dirt is on his feet is turning to mud. And she bathes him in her tears. She could have used her her robe, the sleeve of her robe, to be able to wipe that off. But in humility, she takes her own hair and she takes it down and dries his feet with it. There is nothing too low, too debasing for her to be able to express her gratitude, her humility. She's overwhelmed. Why does she do it? specifically because she is overwhelmed. She doesn't care who sees it. It doesn't matter what you think. I've got to adore Jesus, and nothing will get in my way. So what does Simon think of this woman? It's interesting that he says this stuff to himself. If Jesus knew, if he knew, he clearly, come on. This one, she, she doesn't even belong here. How could he let her touch him that way? He says it to himself. I take that to mean internally, because most, most of the things I say to myself, I say internally. Sometimes I say them out loud and people look at me funny. But probably it appears that Simon in his mind is thinking, Jesus, maybe he whispered it under his breath. But he doesn't rebuke her. He talks about her. And he doesn't rebuke Jesus. He talks about him. He thinks thoughts as he says to himself, nope, not this one. He's not a prophet of God. Because a prophet of God would never put up with a wretch like her. 
he doesn't think very well of this woman. And you might think, it might be normal for you to think, man, what a harsh and judgmental guy. You know who's not thinking that? This immoral woman. She is not thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe how Simon is judging me. How dare you? Only God can judge me wearing her Tupac t-shirt. That is not going through her mind at all. She knows she deserves it. She deserves to be looked down upon. Maybe you and I don't get that because of the world we live in. We are so caught up in the fact that you don't get to look down on me. I have rights. I have value. And you're no better than I am. And we get so fixated on that in our rights that we forget. I'm a wretched sinner. You might be too, but I don't even care. Because if I'm thinking about what a wretched sinner you are, I've forgotten what a wretched sinner I am. She's not thinking that at all. All she's thinking is, Jesus, 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 thank you for your mercy, and I don't care about anything else. Simon's missed it. He thinks he's got something together. He thinks in his own life that he's done a lot for God. He's lived right. He's, you know, he's not wasted his money He's not a drunk like those people. He's not a, a, a floozy like those people. He's a good synagogue-going person. He's, he's at church all the time. He's keeping the law. He's doing all the good things. He doesn't get in trouble. He didn't get blue notes when he was in elementary school. He's missed the boat completely. And he's... Disappointed in Jesus, isn't he? Why? Why is he disappointed in Jesus? Because Jesus doesn't match his expectations. He expects that the one coming from God would see God and see people, note this, the same way Simon does. Don't you and I do that to people? We expect that everybody should see things the same way we do. That God should see things the same way we do. But he doesn't. And he's disappointed in Jesus because Jesus gives grace, undeserved favor. He shows mercy, foregoing deserved condemnation to this woman. Justice doesn't do that. Justice says you're a sinner, you face the consequences. You're a sinner, that means you're an outcast, you don't belong here, and you deserve it. He's disappointed in Jesus because he doesn't live up to his standard of justice. Why isn't Jesus bothered? If Jesus is the Word of God, if Jesus has, has given all the commands that have ever been given, if everything that is in the Old Testament talking about what morality is, is already in Jesus' mind, why? Why doesn't he look on this woman and say, nope, turn first. You get yourself cleaned up. Go take off that garish makeup. Go take that jewelry off. Put on some decent clothes. And when you've cleaned yourself up, then you come and we can talk. When you're good enough. 
Why doesn't he do that? Now, it's easy for us in our world to look at it because we've removed all the restrictions. Our answer to the problem of immorality is get rid of morality. Just lower the bar for everybody. That was one of the hallmarks of the sexual revolution. Men are pigs. So rather than fixing men, we said, let's let's make women pigs too. That's great. It's worked out really well for us, by the way. The answer is not lowering the bar. The answer is understanding reality. God is merciful and loving. He is holy and beyond us. And He knows that we are dust. So He comes to us. And He always has. Oh, I want so desperately to turn the page right now. I'm going to stick with it so we can get through it. I'm a little behind schedule. Simon's disappointed in Jesus because Jesus isn't bothered by her reputation. Jesus isn't bothered by her reputation because he knows who she is in value, that she's a person created in the image of God, and that sin has distorted that image. She is wounded, and her sins come from her wounds. Is she rebellious against God? Absolutely. And so are we. Jesus isn't bothered by her reputation because that's exactly who the gospel is for. Wretched sinners who cannot stand before God. And if you think that you're not one of them, then the gospel is not for you. You have lost it. What's Jesus' point? He tells this story. Simon, do you see this woman? She's like the second person in my parable. Two people owe a big debt. Raise your hand if you have ever had any debt in your life. Raise your hand if you have a mortgage. Anybody have a mortgage? Kind of a big debt, right? Uh, Anybody have a car payment? Car payment? Credit card bills? Raise your hand if a big chunk of your paycheck is already spent to pay those bills before you even get it. It's like slavery, isn't it? You're trapped by it. Sin is a lot like that. That's why Jesus uses this. So imagine now that the people you owe money to said, you know what? You're clear. We're good. You don't have to pay me anything. Now, if that's my last payment on my house, my last mortgage payment, and they say, you're good. You don't have to pay that. Keep that $500 or $1,000 or whatever you're paying on your mortgage. That's good. I'm going to be grateful. If it's my first payment, and they say, you know what? Forget about it. The entire loan is clear. I'm going to be a whole lot more grateful. Some of you have lived right financially, and you don't have a lot of debt. And what you have, if you have been forgiven that, that would be a good thing for you. But how much more grateful are you when you have lived foolishly? Yes, I said foolishly. I'm sorry if that offends you. Uh, It offends me too, because I've lived foolishly. But if I've lived foolishly, and I have debt that has me trapped... And that overwhelming debt is forgiven, taken away. My gratitude is going to be off the charts. 
way more than if I've always lived right and I don't have a lot of debt. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying here. Why is this woman overwhelmed with, with gratitude and humility? Because she gets it. She knows her sinfulness. She's fully aware of it. The people who have lived right, they don't see it as, as deeply as that. They think people are basically good, except for those people. But my people, people like me, we're basically good. Yeah, we got some flaws, we make mistakes, we stumble sometimes, but God gets that. He's missed the point. Here's, the, here's Jesus' point. It's our core reality for today. <clears throat> when we understand what Christ has done for us, nothing else matters. When we understand what Christ has done for us, nothing else matters. What has He done? He has offered to take away all of our debt. Our sin debt. So that we don't receive the wages that we've earned based on our sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is what? Some of you know. Death. Death. That's not a little tiny bill. You have received already from God the death penalty for your sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Eternal life. Throwing away your death penalty because of what He did. If we really get it, then we begin to see, we begin to understand that what Christ has done for us is taken us from death row and set us in the palace to make us children of the King. When we really understand what Christ has done for us, nothing else matters. Say it with me. When we really understand what Christ has done for us, nothing else matters. That's why this woman is here. Because nothing in her life is as important as adoring Christ. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks of her. It doesn't matter who looks at her. It doesn't even matter whose house it is. She's coming into somebody else's house. She's interrupting their party. And all of these respectable people immediately, eyes go to the door. Who in the heck is that? Why is she here? There is something seriously wrong. And all of the fun party sounds become hushed muttering. And she keeps going. Now she's sobbing. Now she's, she's heaving as she's pouring out tears on Jesus. And everybody's focus was on him. Now it's on her. And now it's back to him. Why isn't he doing something? Well, we really get it. The rest, that's a microphone, don't tap it. There, there is nothing else that matters. We begin to understand that all of the things that we think are important, all of the hard things in life are small because I was dead. He's given me life. We begin to understand that all of the things that seemed great, all of the, you know, going to the playoffs and, and making money and getting married and all these wonderful things are small because he is so great. This is where we have to really come to grips with it. I'm going to have you turn. Uh, I would like to have you read a lot more scripture, but we're just going to read a little more scripture. So you can stay marked in Luke if you like. We will 
Uh, probably not spent a lot of time back there since we know the story, but we're going to turn to the book of Isaiah. Where in the world is Isaiah? If you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find the Psalms. Psalms and Proverbs are right about in the middle. Go to the right a little bit from there. Isaiah is an easy book to find because he's a major prophet. When we call them major prophets, it's because they're very wordy. They have big books. I cannot lie. Isaiah 6. I'm sorry. I... Lord, forgive my indiscretion. <clears throat> In Isaiah 6, we get a picture of God, which makes all of my joking absolutely unsuitable. Isaiah has just been commissioned by the Lord to be a prophet. God is displeased with his people Israel, and they will be receiving God's punishment. He's given them opportunity to repent after opportunity to repent, and they have not. They've gone their way instead of God's way. They've been just like everybody else, so God is going to treat them just like everybody else. He doesn't break his covenant. He, they will always be his children, and yet he deals with them very sternly and says, if you want to live like the world, great. You are outside of my protection now. Isaiah has the message for the people that God wants to redeem you. You rightfully deserve judgment. You are wretched. You think you're good. You're doing all the worship acts. You're going to the temple and you're, you're following the law, sort of. At least your version of it. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Isaiah brings the message that God's not done. He's going to send a Messiah, a Redeemer. Here's where he gets this call. Notice what happens, starting with verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Stop for a moment. If you have your own Bible with you and you don't have a screen, because if you mark on your screen with pen, it really goes badly. But if you have your Bible, underline that. I saw the Lord. Nobody sees the Lord and lives. Isaiah receives a vision from God here where he gets to see God seated on a throne, high and exalted. God lifted up, a picture of his majesty, this awesome figure. Now, we don't really get to see everything that he sees, just like in the book of Revelation. We're getting the best description that the human mind and language can, can give us to convey the reality that he is taking in. And if you've ever tried to describe a dream to someone and you just can't quite get it, you tell them the best you can, but it just doesn't capture what you experienced in your dreaming. It's like that. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's a symbol of his glory. The glory of God, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. That's a word for angels that literally means burning ones. So these fiery angels, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. These are signs of humility. And with two they were flying. And they're calling to one another. Just what we see in the kingdom to come. 
The worship of the saints. These angels are calling, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. That three-time repetition is a, a Hebrew sign of completeness. When you really mean something strongly, you emphasize it by re repeating it. Doing it three times is this is the, the pinnacle. God is holy beyond your idea of what holy is and you can't comprehend it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In this moment, Isaiah begins to get it. He sees God. He gets just a glimpse of who God really is, and he's overcome by it. God is too big, too awesome. I hesitate to use that word because we throw it around so lightly. He is awe-inspiring. And Isaiah is dumbstruck. And immediately he cries out, Woe to me, I'm ruined. Death is the only thing that I can expect. I'm a sinner. And this is a holy God. But notice what happens next. In the next couple of verses, we see a transition that impacts everything else. And if you miss this, then listen now. If you miss this, what Isaiah gets here, you're going to miss what this woman gets in the story, and you're going to miss everything the heart of the gospel. Don't miss this. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost shook, the threshold shook, the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Think about this now. This is an angel made of fire, basically, who needs tongs to get this coal from the altar. The altar of God's holiness. This holy angel, perfect without sin, is still unsuited to touch that which represents the holiness of God. Takes this coal from the altar. Verse 7, with it he touched my mouth and said, see this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah does not atone for his sin. The Lord makes provision and atones for his sin. The Lord takes away his sin. I should die. Woe to me. God is holy and I am not. And God says, you are mine. I love you. I'm calling you and I will take away your sin. Your lips have been touched by this coal, and you've been cleansed. Notice what happens next in his response to this. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Immediately God goes from saving him, cleansing him from his sins, to there's a mission here. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah's response, I said, Here am I! Send me! Before he's on his face. I'm unworthy. I'm ashamed. I should die. I deserve hell. Now, 
He's received the mercy of God, and he's overwhelmed by that mercy, so much so that, Lord, make me the messenger. Turn to Psalm 51. If you're still there in Isaiah 6, go back to the left, past Proverbs, Psalm 51. Yes, I know there's a lot left on your, on your outline there. Don't sweat it. We're going to get there. <laughs> psalm 51 is, is the psalm, the song prayer that David writes. After having been caught, this is an important thing, after having been caught, people very seldom ever repent until they've been caught and they have no other choice. After having been caught in adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. After this, David writes this psalm. This is the cry of his heart. And I find it significant that David, having his entire life wrecked by this sin and the judgment of God, he also seeks and receives mercy from God. And this, what should be a private prayer in our minds, David makes a very personal, yet very, very public prayer. He displays his own sin to be sung at church. Can you imagine having your worst moment of your life, your worst failure, your worst sin, put up on the screen for us to sing together? Think about it. That's what this is in Psalm 51. Here's what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Hold on, David. You sinned pretty bad against Bathsheba and her husband. You sinned pretty bad against your wives that you've committed adultery against. You've sinned pretty badly against the people of Israel who suffer because of your sin as their leader. How can you say this? Because David gets what we so often miss. My sin is against a holy God. Primarily, more than anything else, when I sin against you, sorry, that's a, a terrible thing, but it's so small compared to sinning against a holy God. That's not even worth mentioning. How dare I not forgive you for your sins against me? Your sins are primarily against God. If you've done something hurtful and offensive to me, I'm small potatoes. Your sin is against Him. That's for Him to deal with. David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Done what is evil in your sight. Your judgments are right. You are proved right when you speak, justified when you judge. But beyond this sinful act, I was sinful at birth, in verse 5. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. 
Cleanse me with hyssop. It's a a symbolic cleansing here. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. No matter how bad my sin was, God, you can take it away. Only you. And I need it. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't want to be that person. Let me receive your mercy and change me from the inside out. From verse 7 on, it's not about the forgiveness anymore. It's about the transformation. Take it away from me. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to sin against you. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't dwell in people. He came and visited and left. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In other words, a spirit willing to follow you. So that I don't do this out of duty, grudgingly, But grant me a spirit inside that follows you willingly. And notice the response. If you do this, Lord, if you you will take this sin away from me, if you will change me from the inside out, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Then on behalf of God's people, David prays, knowing his sin has consequences. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David, like this woman, like Isaiah, gets it. God is holy. I'm not. And the response to forgiveness, to mercy, undeserved forgiveness, is a life lived in gratitude. I know there's a lot left. We're going to run through it fast. Jot it down if you can. I think the, the wading through the story has given us enough to go with it. If I'm really going to get this, right? If, I, if, I'm, if I'm not overwhelmed with humility and gratitude, then I just don't get it. I'm out of touch with reality. If I can sit in church and sing songs and move along with my life and be comfortable, then I don't get it. If I can think that I'm better than other people, then I don't get it. If I can think that somehow my reputation matters even a little bit, then I don't get it. If I'm worried about what people think of me when I speak of Jesus, when I live for Him, then I don't get it. Let's talk about this not getting it. When I don't get it, I think I am something. I'm focused on my self-esteem, my self-worth, my self-love. I have to take care of myself. I deserve respect. I don't need to be treated that way. I think that somehow I am worthy 
when I don't get it, I think I can impress God. I think I'm basically good. Yeah, I got problems. I make mistakes. But I'm better than those people. I'm not like that guy. I'm not like her. If any of that is part of us, we don't get it. When I begin to get it, when I begin to transfer from that to something new, this is what happens to Isaiah. This is what happens to David when he's caught in his sin. Isaiah is caught by his own conscience when he sees who God is. David gets called on the carpet by God because he once knew and he forgot. And when he got off track, he needed God to, for lack of a better term, spank him in a very, very serious way to get his attention. But when it happens, when I begin to get it, I see that God is majestic, powerful, and holy. When we talk about, excuse me, when we talk about the fear of God in, in the Bible... The fear of God is where we begin to get it. When we realize God is somebody worthy of being afraid. We should be afraid of God. Oh, we shouldn't be afraid of God. Yes, you should. If you think you shouldn't be afraid of God, you don't know God. He created the universe. He can end you right now. You do not deserve to be in front of Him. The only right response is, woe to me. I'm ruined. I can't be in front of this God. Sorry, I'm shouting. When I begin to get it, I see that God is majestic, powerful, and holy. When I begin to get it, sin and injustice offend me. I see that there is wrong in the world and I hate it. That's when I'm beginning to get it. When I kind of get it, now I begin to get a sense of my wretchedness. I'm devastated by my sin. Now it's not those sins out there that offend me. It's the sin in here that offends me. I'm offended by myself. That's when I start to kind of get it. I've seen God. I know I'm not like that. And I'm angry about all the wrong things in the world, but no, no, no. It's bigger than that. It's me. I am what's wrong with the world. Then I kind of get it. Lastly, when I really get it. I, I've already gotten to this place where I, I realize the problem. I'm going to hell. I am going to hell. And it's overwhelming. But there's more. When I really get it, I trust Jesus to do what I can't do anyway. To save me from hell. To save me from the ruin that I deserve that my wretchedness rightly brings on me. I trust in him to take care of that. That's where this woman is. She's like, I know I can't deserve anything, but, but look at him. Look at the love and the mercy he's bringing. I have hope. When I really get it, I fall on his mercy and surrender to his will. I trust that he can do it and I've got no place else to turn, so I'm on my face before him. Please, Lord, have mercy on me. And I give up control. When I really get it, I am overwhelmed by his mercy. 
Now, I've had a lot of discussions with people about, you know, when you, when you receive Christ, what does it mean to be saved? Well, I didn't have that big emotional crying thing. Some people have all that. I, don't, I didn't have that, so maybe I'm not saved. That's not the point. It's not about your emotions. It's about getting it when you are overwhelmed with His mercy. And it drives you to humility. That's when you really get it. Weeping fits. Maybe your personality isn't demonstrative, but if your heart isn't broken, if anything else matters, you don't get it yet. When I really get it, I fall in His mercy and surrender to His will. I'm overwhelmed by His mercy. And nothing else matters but Christ. Why does it matter? Because this is reality. And if I don't get reality, then all the rest of this is just games. It's just religious games. Just going to church like so many other people do. And it doesn't change me. And I'm still going to hell. If you're comfortable in your religion, I'm not kidding with you. You're going to hell. I don't care if you've been at real life as long as we've been open. Real life doesn't save you. Being overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus Christ saves you. He says to this woman, your faith has saved you. Now, it really isn't her faith. It's the grace of God that she's received by her faith. And he clarifies that elsewhere. But because she's been forgiven much, she loves much. She's overwhelmed with that. For you and I, if we're going to take this home... It's got to be more than a church thing. It's got to be more than, hey, that was a good pastor sermon. Sermon pastor. <laughs> Although that Freudian slip is probably more appropriate. If it's a pastor sermon, we've already lost. It can't be a pastor sermon. It's got to be the Word of God. And you've got to wrestle with it. You've got to bleed with it. If you don't bleed with it, it's not yours. If it doesn't break you inside to realize that you put him on the cross, I put him there. I did that. And if it doesn't break me, then I don't get it. And I hate it when I get loud. But guys, the right response is just like Isaiah, just like David. Lord, because I do get it, nothing else matters. I want to live for you. You died for me. I want to live for you. Yeah. Romans 12, 1, it's your memory verse for today. You can mark it, get it into your head, get it into your heart. In view of God's mercy, if we understand, if we get it, then the only right, reasonable, spiritual, logical response is to make myself a living sacrifice. I'm all yours. With all I am. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I apologize for my demonstrative nature. I apologize, Lord, for the, the lighthearted remarks. Father, please Please speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue today. May your Holy Spirit move in us in a way 
that overcomes these shortcomings. That we might never at any point get caught up in the humanness of this. But that we would be overwhelmed by your mercy and grace and respond to you by giving you all that we have. Everything that makes us who we are surrendered to you as a living sacrifice. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.